Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Aska Sharif. I am five years old. I am in kindergarten at Stevenson School in Des Plaines. And I am doing a podcast on a story I wrote. The name is The Stealer of the Diamond. Listen to this episode of Azka's Mystery Podcast, written and created by five-year-old Azka. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hello, welcome to Red Rum Blonde. On August 22, 1972, two men entered a branch of the Chase Manhattan Bank in New York, armed with a shotgun. Their robbery plans went awry and hostages ended up being taken. The whole scene turned into a three-ring circus. The robbers were there for money, of course, but one declared that he was doing it for love. And if this sounds like something out of a movie, that's because it is. It's the plot of Dog Day Afternoon starring Al Pacino, but it's all based on fact. I really hope you've seen this movie because it's a classic. This week, I'll discuss the real Dog Day Afternoon bank robber, 
John Waterwoods. So before I go into the bank robbery itself, of course I'm going to go into the life of John Waterwoods. I mean, this guy is such a character, and the events that happened in his life are truly what I think led up to this bank robbery. And some may disagree about the motive, which I'll go into later, but I believe what John said about why he did it. I got a good bit of my info from a documentary about Waterwoods called The Dog. It's by Alison Berg and Frank Harridan, and it was 10 years in the making. It's a lot of extensive footage and interviews with John Waterwoods as well as many peripheral characters. And for me, it really made me love this guy, which I said he's a total character. He has this really thick New York accent. He loves to curse, and he's totally unapologetic. So John Wadowitz was born on March 9, 1945, in New York City to a Polish father and an Italian-American mother. His father was always there in his life, but it's really his mother, Terry, who was the one that he was closest to. The Wadowitzes had three children altogether, all boys. Now, John had an older brother with special needs that was removed from the family by the courts at a really young age. Tony Wadowitz suffered from epilepsy and seizures. And his mother told this really sad story about how a judge ordered that he be sent to an institution at the age of five. Now, this was a totally different time in the world. When there was a kid with special needs like Tony, they were sent away to institutions for the entirety of their lives. And most of these facilities were overcrowded and pretty inhumane. A lot of families did things like this voluntarily, but Terry was forced to send her child away. And she took him to the train, and when he realized that he was leaving without her, she said he screamed uncontrollably, so much so that she could hear his screams a block away. When she spoke of this in the documentary, you could tell that it was a haunting memory for her. This might be why Terry and John grew so close. Terry said that John was a really good kid. He was never in trouble. And as she said, he wasn't out in the streets causing trouble. He just played baseball every day with his friends. He had trophies lined up in his room. He was just a good kid. After he graduated from high school, John got a job at Chase Manhattan Bank. And this is where he met his first wife, Carmen Bifuco. She was a teller there, and they quickly fell in love. Where she was quiet, John was loud and brash. He was short but full of bravado. Carmen said he picked her up for their first date with two other girls in the car. Although he is a self-proclaimed pervert, John was also a huge romantic. As well as loving sex, he loved love. It was what drove him, but it would also be his downfall. So up to this point, John was strictly heterosexual. That was until he was drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. And there he had his first gay experience with a, quote, hillbilly named Wilbur. The encounter both surprised and pleased him. From that point on, he desired relationships with both men and women. Vietnam was also a life-changing experience in many other ways. Before the war, John called himself a conservative who admired Barry Goldwater. And then after the war, he was the opposite. 
and this is due to how many of his fellow soldiers that he saw killed. In February of 1967, near the DMZ zone, 90% of his fellow crew were killed. Think of that, 90%. In October of 1967, John and Carmen got married in Brooklyn against the wishes of her family who had never liked John. And perhaps they were on to something. The night of the wedding, there was a huge fight between John and Carmen because her parents wanted John to foot some of the bill for the wedding. And this fight got so heated that the priest who performed the ceremony offered to annul it on the spot. The couple stayed together, had two kids, and finally split on June 20th, 1969. After his return from the war, John became really involved in the gay community. He joined the Gay Activist Alliance, a nonviolent political organization who had their headquarters at a place called the Firehouse on Worcester Street in the village. There, folks knew him as Little John Basso, Basso being his mother's maiden name, and Little John, he says, due to his small endowment. Every week, a huge group of people in the gay community would gather at the firehouse. And there, John explored his newfound sexuality as a greeter. He was very well known for his promiscuity, as well as his work for gay rights. Inside the firehouse, members would dance and congregate, and sex was rampant inside the firehouse. But outside, the Gay Activist Alliance was all business. The group stormed the marriage bureau to protest for gay marriage equality. And this was in the very early 70s. The Stonewall riots had just happened in that same neighborhood. And for the very first time, America was being showed a different side of life. But it would be a very long road for changes to come. And the work of the Gay Activist Alliance was just a stepping stone to work to pave the way for things like gay marriage that we have today. It was around this same time, on June 6th, that John met what he felt was the love of his life, Ernie Aaron, who would become known as Liz Eden. The two met at the Feast of St. Anthony in New York City, and John declared that this was love at first sight. And for purposes of the story, I'll refer to Ernie as Liz, because I think she identified as a woman more than a man. In the documentary, John refers to her a lot as Ernie, or he, but it's really obvious that Ernie wanted to be a woman. And when he met her, Liz was dressed as a man, but wearing a full face of makeup. And they made quite the odd couple. Liz was very statuesque, with these delicate features, while John was very short and very boisterous. Having Al Pacino play him in the film was perfect casting. The one thing that they did have in common was their energy. Liz was described as having lots of it combined with a very loud laugh. John was clearly bisexual, so having a relationship with a man who dressed and lived as a woman was no issue. I don't even think saying bisexual is the right term for him. I think John would have loved anything that crossed his path. He had absolutely no hang-ups about any type of sex with anyone. John was so smitten with Liz that he sent her roses every week. And when Liz said that roses die, John started sending velvet roses to show that his love would never die. I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, that's incredibly romantic. But, you know, romance is very complicated, right? 
as complicated as a man wanting to marry another man who identified as a woman and operated as a sex worker. True love doesn't care about circumstances, and John was very adamant about marrying his love. So they went for it. Invitations were made, and Liz splurged on a $1,000 dress. The wedding was held at a place called What's in a Name Cafe, and John wore his army uniform. The ceremony was provided over by a gay priest, and there was a huge attendance, including John's mother, Terry. Here's what I love about this woman. This is the early 70s, and she's fully accepted her son and his lifestyle. And considering that there are people in 2019 that still don't accept anything but heterosexuality, that's really something. And I think that's the really great takeaway in this whole story. A lot of these characters loved despite society's restrictions, which is really beautiful. They just loved and they didn't give a shit what anyone thought. But like I said, love is complicated. Liz identified as a woman, so much so that she wanted a surgery to fully become one. But this was something John didn't want. It caused a huge fight and a breakup between the two. And this spiraled into really bad depression, and eventually Liz tried to commit suicide by taking a butcher knife to her wrists. But a struggle ensued over the knife, John grabbing it for Liz. However, Liz later said that John was trying to kill her. The fact is, Liz had major problems with depression, and whether it was chemical or due to the inability to fully become a woman isn't clear. Liz did try to kill herself on other occasions. On August 19, 1972, she took a bunch of Salmonex and some downers and attempted to take her life. Luckily, the job wasn't successful, and she was taken to Kings County Hospital. But the doctor there declared that she was never going to get out. And this was a thought that was devastating to John Wadowitz. So while he once opposed this sex reassignment surgery, John now realized that this was something Liz needed to survive. She was very unhappy in her current situation. And due to all of this, she was possibly never going to be released from the hospital. So he hatched a plan. He met up with two associates, 20-year-old Bobby Westernberg and 18-year-old Sal Natural, who was played in the movie by the great John Cazale. And these guys are almost as interesting as Wadowitz. Sal lived in the same neighborhood as John, and perhaps that's how they knew each other. It's not quite clear. Sal had been in and out of reform schools during his teen years, and his life of crime continued with charges of burglary and possession of narcotics. He is said to have had ties to the mob, but that's not proven. And it might be why he went by the name Salvatore Antonio Natural when his given name was Donald Matterson. Like the thought is if you have a more Italian sounding name that you might get more respect from the mafia, but who knows. A lot less is known about Bobby Westernberg. The most information came from John himself in the documentary. The trio met at a bar to discuss John's plan. And there, he offered the men $50,000 to break Liz out of the hospital. They stayed at the Golden Nugget Motel the night before acting on anything. John said Bobby, quote, dressed like a girl that night, which turned John on. And the two ended up having sex. 
and when Bobby wouldn't have sex with Sal, he was really sore about it. After their sex shenanigans, the talk finally turned to their plans. John was finally behind this idea for the surgery, and the best place to get a lot of fast money would be a bank robbery. But these guys make the three stooges look like geniuses. At the first bank they stopped at, John said when they exited the car, he heard this really loud boom. One of the guys had dropped the bag carrying the shotgun on the ground. And it was almost comedic because it was in this huge Wrigley Spearmint gum bag made to look like some kind of pop art. But to them, it made that seem less conspicuous. They quickly left after that fiasco. At the second bank, they made it inside only for Bobby to be instantly recognized by his mother's friend. So that one was next. After two failed attempts, the guys decided to get some inspiration before their next try. They went to see the... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Godfather at a theater on 42nd Street. Now there's another story that said the men had met a bank executive at a bar called Danny's who suggested that they could get between 150 to 200,000 by robbing the bank. He said the bank's money would be delivered by an armored truck before 3 that day. Regardless of where they got the idea, the three men entered the Chase Manhattan location at Avenue P and East 3rd Street around 3 p.m. And things went wrong immediately. The armor truck had not arrived. Then Bobby got spooked and ended up leaving before the robbery could be completed. Bobby left and John had just handed his note to the cashier, which, inspired by the Godfather, read, This is an offer you can't refuse. And they were only going to come away with about $29,000. And as they went to leave, several cop cars pulled up outside. The men panicked and decided to hold the bank staff, consisting of six women and one man hostage. John and Sal were nervous, and it really showed. At first, the bank employees were frightened, and Sal never did calm their nerves. He got more and more agitated as the time went on. 
Plus, he was so mad that the TV and newspaper reports were calling him a homosexual. John had made demands. He had wanted Liz to come to the bank. And he offered to release the bank manager in exchange. So this was all over the news. Two homosexuals demanding the release of a transvestite. There were other demands. They wanted Coke and hamburgers for themselves and the employees. It had been hours and everybody was very hungry. The third demand was for a car to take them to Kennedy Airport, where a plane would be waiting to take them to get Liz's reassignment surgery. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, the first thing to go wrong was the food. Instead of Coke and hamburgers, they got pizza. And John didn't like pizza, but he paid anyway by throwing a wad of bells out the door. And the next issue was Liz. Apparently, she was afraid of John and wouldn't come to the door of the bank, and she would only talk to him by the phone. So let me paint a picture of what the scene was like. There's a huge crowd of onlookers that had formed by the bank, and that's in addition to police, fire department, ambulances, and snipers. Witnesses describe it as more of like a block party than a hostage situation. And John was constantly in and out of the bank, talking to the police on the sidewalk. And at one point, as it got into the evening, an old lover of John's, who went by the name of Patsy, came down to the bank. He greeted his old paramour at the door with a huge French kiss. And that's when the crowd began chanting queer, and the scene inside wasn't any calmer. A sow was really on edge. John said that he was afraid that he would kill one or more of the hostages. And then the mayor called and basically told the men that he would kill all of the hostages rather than see them get away with what they wanted because the whole nation was watching. It's really unbelievable. And all the while, Carmen, John's ex and the mother of his children, is watching this unfold on live television. And the thing about Carmen was she didn't harbor any bad feelings towards John. They talked by phone. And he confessed to her that he didn't think that they were going to walk out of there alive. Also watching was Terry, John's mother, who was afraid that she was going to witness her son's death. John really did not trust the cops. He yelled, we got guns and rifles and bombs here, and I don't want to hurt anyone. I just want to get out of here alive. Even one of the hostages, teller Shirley Ball, said, a damn shame that nothing's being done and the FBI are sacrificing seven lives for two. They're backing John against the wall and I don't see how long our luck is going to hold out. And she talked about how Sal seemed trigger happy. If you've seen the movie Dog Day Afternoon, you will remember very vividly Al Pacino yelling, Attica, Attica. So let me explain that whole reference. In September of 1971, there was this very deadly prison riot that lasted days. And this is at Attica. The inmates were protesting their living conditions. And four days of negotiations were for nothing because police officers stormed the prison. Ten of the captive staff members and 29 inmates were killed. A commission was appointed to investigate the events, said... With the exception of the Indian massacres in the late 19th century, 
The state police assault, which ended the four-day prison uprising, was the bloodiest one-day encounter between Americans since the Civil War. So John, Sal, and all of the bank employees were very afraid of having a repeat of Attica. John had communicated with a couple of different reporters. One was Randy Wicker, who had filmed his wedding to Liz, and another was Arthur Bell from The Village Voice. John had wanted him to come to the bank and act as a sort of mediator. They had known each other from the days of the Gay Activist Alliance. Arthur grabbed Voice City editor Mary Nichols, and together, driven by police, they raced to the scene. Once they got there, however, they were denied access to the bank by the FBI. Arthur did find Liz, though. She was sitting in a nearby Palestinian barbershop, still wearing her hospital gown, covered in a bathrobe and wearing bunny slippers. Liz claimed that she didn't know that John was doing everything to get her operation. So when she found that out, this time she wanted to go to the bank, but she was shut down by the FBI too. Liz was under the impression that the whole bank robbery was being done for the mob, and quite a few other people backed this theory. So according to the story by Arthur Bell, the Gambino crime family was behind the whole plot. Supposedly, John was in debt to them from the wedding expenses. The mob boss at the time was indicted on charges of conspiracy to rob a Chase armored truck. This was years later, so it kind of makes sense. The plan had been hatched to rob this branch. And Liz found out late in the game, only days before. And this is when she threatened to kill herself if John went ahead with it. John ignored her, and Liz took the overdose of pills. She said that this was the real reason for trying to take her life. And informants have said that the mafia was going to get 50% of the take, which would have ideally been seventy-five to $100,000. So around 3 a.m., everyone thought they heard a gunshot. Arthur Bell said that they were told it was a firecracker. In reality, it was Sal who Trigger happily shot at the back door thinking someone was trying to come in. Then around 3.50, the impasse was over. John came out and asked that everyone drop their guns. Then slowly the hostages started to walk out. And they made it to a waiting limousine. And that limousine was then rushed away, but followed by 40 police cars. And it did surprisingly take them to Kennedy Airport, where a plane was waiting. But before they could get anywhere, Sal was shot dead by an FBI agent posing as the driver. John was then arrested. At his sentencing, he declared his love for his family and Liz. They sent him to Lewisburg Penitentiary, which is a notoriously tough prison. Most of the prisoners there carried their own weapons. And the place was rife with beatings and rapes. In fact, John was cornered in the laundry room by three men. And there they hit him with a lead pipe and violently raped him. At one point, he was so distraught he tried to kill himself by slitting his wrist. But somehow he found protection in another inmate named George Heath. George had always carried a knife and then he took John under his wing. George, just like Liz, loved to dress in women's clothing. And from there, he and John began a relationship. And in 1974, they married in the prison yard. 
He described John as bad, but with a really good heart. Terry routinely visited her son in prison, even sneaking food into the place via her bra. We're talking cheese and salami. After seven years in prison, John Wadowitz was given a reduced sentence and released. This was around 1978. For a short time, he stayed at the Bryant Hotel, a halfway house. And since inmates have trouble finding work, he resorted to cleaning toilets. But that didn't pay the bills. John and George moved in with John's parents. Of course, Terry was elated. She never batted an eyelash at any of their friends that dropped by. Whether you were in drag or however, she accepted anyone that graced her home. And sadly, George and John didn't last. After about three years, they split. The other odd thing that I remember about this documentary was George talking about how John and Carmen still saw each other and I think had sex on the side, which is really odd. So I guess they kept their relationship going. And poor John still had trouble finding work. And so much so that he stood outside the Chase Manhattan Bank that he formerly robbed and offered to be security. His reasoning being that no one would try to rob the place with his notoriety. They politely declined. John did become something of a local celebrity, though. He would sign autographs and pose outside the bank. So what happened to Liz? She eventually got her surgery on March 27, 1973. A lawyer had contacted John saying that they wanted to make a movie about the robbery. So he was paid $75,000 plus 1% of the film's net profits, which he gave to Liz to get the surgery. But the surgery didn't make her happy like she thought it would. She still struggled with deep depression. And as close as she and John were, Liz moved on. John followed her around like a lost puppy, but to no avail. She fell back into sex work and died from an AIDS-related pneumonia on September 29, 1987, at the age of 41. As for John, he continued to live with Terry until his death from cancer at age 60 on January 2, 2006. In the documentary, she showed how she kept his room as it was when he was alive. And I could really relate to their relationship. I'm really close to my son, especially now that he's older, and we're best friends and love having dinner together. I could see a lot of us in Terry and John. So that was the real Dog Day Afternoon. It's a really great movie if you haven't seen it. I would say it's definitely in my top 20 films. Al Pacino and John Cazale are so good. And from what I've learned, it's pretty accurate. You have to definitely check out the documentary The Dog, too. So coming up at the end of the week, there's the True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th. There's still tickets left. I'll be there. I've got some really small Red Rum Blonde stickers to hand out. They didn't end up being as big as I thought they were going to be, but I have 500 of them, so that's going to be cool. And in really exciting news, the podcast is now on iHeartRadio, so you have another way to listen. Please join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. I want to welcome our newest member, Sarah, so thanks for joining. And I really love that everyone's been posting more. Hopefully this episode will get the podcast over the 100,000 mark on ACAST. So to me, that's mind-blowing that there have been that many listens. I know I had a good bit on SoundCloud, but this is just strictly 
one hundred thousand on Acast. So to me, that's that's something. I know everybody else is like five billion downloads and listens, but hey, we can't all be with the big dogs. And the podcast is officially two years old. The first episode aired on June twenty seventh, two years ago. Man, it's crazy to believe it's been two years. I just want to thank everyone for listening. So here's to another year and catch you guys next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.